Hey, before we get started, shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn N.A. beer out there. I'm a brand ambassador, and I want to celebrate this amazing product. If you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. I don't get any money, and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast. I just get points for swag and beer, so give it a shot. My recommendation, the Free Wave Hazy IPA. Oh, my God. You know, uh, Brandon, truth be told, the story behind the story is more interesting as it <laughs> usually is. Hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pot, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Today's guest is Adam Popescu. He is a Los Angeles based writer and journalist. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Vanity Fair, National Geographic, Outside Magazine, among others. He specializes in narratives on power, culture, wildlife, climate, and the dark side of big tech. And that brings us to a recent piece of his that he wrote for MIT Technology Review. Here's the gist. Gorillas, militias, and Bitcoin. Why Congo's famous national park is betting big on crypto. In an attempt to protect its forests and famous wildlife, Virunga has become the first national park to run a Bitcoin mine. But some are wondering what the hell crypto has to do with conservation. Right? I'm hooked. If you don't know what Bitcoin is, I don't. Don't ask me. Uh, But Adam explains it a bit. He talks about the logistics of going abroad, being a foreign correspondent. This is his jam. This guy is a globe trotter. Not the not the Harlem Globetrotter kind. He riffs on his experience interviewing, among others, Hunter Biden and what Adam brings along with him when he's out in the jungle, when he's traveling. There you can't just if you're in Congo, there you're not just going to Walmart if you forgot something. You can learn more about Adam at his website, adampepescu.com. That's A D A M P O P E S C you he's on instagram and twitter at adam popescu i deeply admire the kind of work people like adam do i I get anxiety by heading down to the am pm for a tall boy and here's adam reporting from hostile territories and coming back to tell us about it i wish i was more like him and people like him uh so you're just gonna you're gonna get a sense of what makes him tick so without Without let's, let's let's just not even wait anymore. Let's just do this. Let's do this. CNFers, here's Adam. Huh. Jumping into these things, I, I like getting a sense of like where the where the juice is for uh, for a writer, or a reporter, oh, and you know your case. You know you're just such a, a globe trotting. Uh, journalist, and I want to just get a sense of, uh, you know, for you, you know, where's the where's the juice in this line of work for you? Well, I, I think you really just said it. You know, there is a lot of people say that that there's no mystery today, that there's no unknown, mysterious places because we're so overly connected. But I think it's the exact opposite. We are very connected. We are very aware of each other, but so few of us 
go outside of those comfort zones, outside of those bubbles. And as a result, we think that we know the world. We think that we know how other people live. I've, I've been very fortunate to report from every continent except for Australia and Antarctica. And I say that not to, as, a, as a show off, but on this trip to Congo, it felt like the first time I've ever really traveled because this place was so beyond stereotype and so inspiring in many ways and so complicated and so challenging. And that's what these stories allow you to do is go see things like this for yourself and examine your notions of what you think the world is really like. Given the, the nature of your body of work and being able to hop around the globe, you know, what are some of the, the logistics that go into that to be it for the, you know, the travel and lining up translators? This seems like there's a lot of balls to juggle before you embark on a very ambitious reporting trip. Absolutely. I was wondering if you were going to ask me that because that's something that often goes neglected. Uh, I think the logistic parts are, you know, this doesn't just happen overnight. Um, whenever you, I'm going anywhere, I, I usually spend a lot of time trying to do my homework and reading about a place. And sometimes, you know, the, the best is if you can have be with locals because they can really provide you with a sense of place and understanding that you don't get from a guidebook, that you don't get from joining a, a, a group, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? This trip, I went completely by myself. So the logistics of this were many months in the making. In many ways, when I said earlier that this is, felt like the first time traveling, this was also the culmination of years of reporting from challenging places. But this felt like several runs higher, several in terms of difficulty and challenges, and also just you know, nerves, you know, there's no tourism in this location really because of unrest. There's, there's very little to any paved roads. There is little infrastructure. There are all the, the creature comforts that reporters or tourists for that matter, or, or we at home just take for granted. So going into it, I had to be very aware of the, the challenges and you try to, to, to prepare as best you can. So what that means is I took a special training for journalists and for humanitarian workers. It's called mm -hmm. HEAT training, which is hostile environment awareness training. Uh, I went to Washington, D.C., and it was several days. It was a mix of former military, first aid, very basic combat stuff, hand-to-hand -hand stuff. Uh, and you get a certification. The idea is to mimic or it's provide you with a sense of challenges abroad. Some of them are very basic. Some of them are very intuitive. Others are not. And I'll give you an example. You know, in certain places, uh, you shake someone's hand, look them in the eye. In certain cultures, that's seen as disrespectful. Certain places, you might want to be in the front seat of the, the vehicle when you're traveling. Other places, it might be safer to be in the back seat. Some of them are gender specific. Some of this, uh, it really helps because... The way that I that I look at it, everyone has their own philosophy, but the way that I really look at it is I'm a guest, whether it's in East Africa or maybe even East L.A. I live in Los Angeles. If I'm in a different part of town that I am not a resident, I want to feel like I am following the rules. I don't want to be the ugly American. I don't want to be... Uh, 
getting anyone in trouble for my reporting. It's incredibly easy to do that because people feel obligated or they feel the, the draw of money or whatever to cater to you. And sometimes that can get you in trouble or get you in danger. So you try to be as aware as you can. I try to be very low profile. And, you know, you can only, that, that's, a, that's a push and pull because you stick out. You're a foreigner, obviously, and in a, I'm in a black country. I'm a white face, a European face. So automatically you stick out. So there's things you can do, but you, you kind of have to just be of situational awareness that it helps to, to travel abroad and there's certain kind of um, ways of thinking and ways of acting, you know, that, that can help mitigate these things. But uh, going back to training, months and months of speaking to people who have worked, lived, in Congo. Uh, I also took several first aid courses. Uh, I worked with a, an insurance company in case something would happen. I had a satellite device that I would do regular check-ins. I was also around, I was, I was the guest of the national park. And when I say guest, I mean, I, I, I paid to stay there. It wasn't mm-hmm. transactional, but uh, this national park, the National Park in the east of Congo, is a government body, and they provide security. In, in as much as if I'm traveling with them, they, they themselves travel in convoys. They're armed. This is what's essentially known as a threat projection, if I can say that. And, and what I mean by that is that that's not the right phrase, but essentially, in a place that's that's got sectarian violence, militia groups, etc. There's two schools of thought. A lot of aid workers say that it's better not to be with armed people because perhaps that can be provocative. Sometimes aid workers or other humanitarian organizations, they get targeted if they have the UN logo on their truck or something else. Other places, they're, they're welcomed. In this region, Unfortunately, because there is so many different groups and so many different interests and so much both hot and cold, essentially war, the only way to travel for these uh, rangers who are basically a law enforcement body is to do so uh, under armed escort or under armed uh, guards. And they would go in uh, groups of maybe two trucks six to 12 guys total uh, and armed with light semi-automatic weapons, sometimes heavy weapons. And again, you know, the preparation of this as I'm not around people with weapons, usually as a reporter, it it, it can be kind of intimidating. It can be kind of, um, can be kind of scary for a lot of people. It's very scary. So to go to a place like this, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in a sense. You have to be willing to put a, a measure of trust in, in others to protect your safety. One of the ways you do that, or one of the ways I did that, was I figure that if you're in a car with six to 12 guys who are heavily armed, if I am a guy on the road who may be a militia member, maybe I'm one guy, maybe I'm two guys, I have an AK-47, if I see 12 guys with an AK, with AKs, maybe with one with a heavier machine gun, I'm not going to mess with them because it's not really a, a risk that it's, it's probably not a, a fight they're going to win. 
you know, that sounds really fatalistic. These are kind of the stakes there. And this is what makes a place like Congo or a place like Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, these are places that are the highest level, I think, of challenge for a reporter because we're not armed. And we're essentially, uh, you know, for some would say we shouldn't be there. And sometimes you can get in trouble. It's very easy to for something to happen. Sometimes it's wrong place, wrong time. You know, at the same time, this is what draws this is what draws interest. This is this is another region that's got almost as much displaced people and refugees as Ukraine, but few Westerners know that. It's also a place where we rely on for cobalt and coltan, which are extremely vital to the e-battery movement and to the cell phones in our pockets or the computers we're talking uh, with. So it's very hard to, on one side of your brain, to kind of make sense of what's going on. Because you hear narratives from abroad or narratives from afar, and then you step on the ground, and it can be jarring. So in these situations, you do your best to speak to as many voices as you can. You do your best to vet things that people tell you, perhaps later on. You do your best to, um, as you mentioned, translators and whatnot. You do your best to to get what you can as a reporter, but don't push certain buttons or go in directions, both physically and, and literally, that may get someone in trouble after the fact. Um, I had people WhatsApping me you know, in the past months because I went there last year and for a full year, I'm basically... I'm still like reporting the story. So I'm keeping up and I'm reading and I'm in touch with people. And people tell me that they're being targeted by militias and they're trying to escape. You know, what should I do? And your 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 heart breaks because maybe someone, maybe somebody helps you. There's some risk to them. You know, if I'm writing the New York Times, writing in MIT Tech Review, these are visible platforms that maybe the locals don't read English, but it's still easy to translate, still kind of easy to see. And if I'm a militia group, for instance, and they're speaking about this or saying things about the situation there, that can make someone a target. So, you know, you have a responsibility as a reporter. We have a responsibility as an outsider to respect the balance there, not getting one hurt, and do your best to, to report as accurately as you can and, and not really shaking the hornet's nest because that's unfortunately – this idea of helicopter helicoptering yeah. in that the media gets a lot of shit about, it's for this kind of stuff. And, and I've gone to places all over the world, some in America, where people say, you know, we've been burned by, by this place. This reporter said something alive to us. And it's so easy to break the trust, to lose the trust, that it, that's why it's so valuable. And this place like this was, it is the ultimate challenge you know, in as much as there are threats both real and existential. There are threats you may not see. There are just challenges in terms of getting there. Challenges in terms of, again, the nerves side. To to just do a regular story is hard enough. To do it in a place where there could be a language barrier, there could be cultural uh, barriers that you're not quite aware of. There's an active volcano. There is uh, weather issues nonstop. There is, you can't use a road. There is, you know, one thing after another. And that that's really hard to do. 
And that's why few people go to these kind of places. And you said a moment ago, you know, talking about trust and, you know, given that in a place um, like the Congo, <laughs> lots of African countries, there's a lot of colonial trauma and that can make, make trust all the more difficult. So, you know, for, for you, as you said, kind of looking, you know, white European, there are going to be those overtones of colonialism and colonial trauma. So how have you navigated that degree of trust, you know, in a place like uh, East Africa? It's a good question. I think you do the best you can. Uh, that, that might sound trite, but going into this story or as a reader at home, one of the main characters that I use to, to basically tell this story is the Belgian park director, Emmanuel Demerode. So very fascinating guy, very complicated guy, and very polarizing, very controversial. Again, obviously, uh, this is a place with a Belgian colonial past, a Belgian park director who's in many ways um, uh, is, the, is symbolically the head of this organization um, that has this trauma. The question becomes, can we escape trauma? Can we escape the, the, the trauma of history? And that that's a question that we can't possibly answer in, in this dialogue. Every single person probably has their own deeply personal feeling about that. I myself have that feeling from my own family history. So what I try to do is I try to, to, bridge divides with my subjects that I'm writing about, people I'm, I'm, I'm reporting on, no matter who it is. I try to bring my experience as tangential as it might be, but I share myself to try to get someone to share their story because they're doing me an honor, really. I, I, again, it's a, for someone to open up, it doesn't always just happen easily. You, you have to give up yourself too so people feel comfortable. And that doesn't mean transactional money necessarily, but it really means letting someone know your story, letting someone know why you're here. And I, I'm, you know, as a, as a writer, as a reporter, I'm interested in places that other people perhaps overlook. I'm interested in places that are on the brink for various reasons. And I'm also interested, I'm interested in people. You know, these are very common threads, and most people want to feel accepted. They want to feel important. They want to feel like they can provide for their, their loved ones and to feel honorable in doing so. And some of these people who are unfortunately refugees in, in, in East Africa, they have a lot of dignity and they, they want to feel like they matter. So if, you can, if you're aware of that, it can be incredibly helpful to you as a reporter because this is not, I'm not interested in, in, in doing the same story everyone else or many have done, which is this is a, co a continent full of misery or this is a place full of whatever superlative you want to put in that's basically a negative. If anything, this is a, a region, a continent that is extremely young, extremely aware. We're all interconnected now. They're on, most people have, have cell phones and awareness. They might not live the same physical lives as us, but they're exposed to a lot of the same ideas. And the big problem in the developing world, and again, this is a term that some people don't like to, to use, but I say it in as much as it's underdeveloped with in terms of infrastructure and economy, roads, hospitals, things like that. 
the question is, how do they get a quality of life? How does, how does the rest of the world get a so-called Western quality of life in terms of reliance on government, health care, uh, upward mobility, less corruption? How do you do that without sacrificing a culture, values, ways of life, and in places that are incredibly important to all of us, unfortunately, the environment? It's a very tenuous balance. Again, no real easy answers. And many places have their own story and their own um, approach to this. But what drew me here was initially there's these hydroelectric power plant projects trying to bring power to a region without it in the hopes that it helps bring stability. By no means is this a zero-sum game. Uh, it is not like a right or wrong in terms of does it work, does it not. There are things about it that does work. There's things about it, unfortunately, that doesn't. But this great area, this the challenges of, of, of bringing projects like this to regions that need them desperately was what drew me here. And the fact that we have a Belgian park director who's also a prince who's also survived an assassination attempt here and has sacrificed himself and his family for over several decades. These are the, the, the stakes or the characters, or some of which, that make it a bit of a head-scratcher. Well, so it does have a colonial past. Can this guy be a good guy? Can this project, even if it doesn't serve everyone, not everyone's, you know, not everyone is decided on this is good or this is bad, can that still serve the population writ large? All these challenging questions that make it fascinating, that make it interesting, that make it worth, worth people's time to read, you hope. And then when you learn other things where, okay, one of the projects this park is doing is a chocolate factory, trying to bring a legal market of cacao, trying to do coffee, chia seeds, trying to do a Bitcoin mine. What? What is that? What is going on here? There's all these things that are extremely counterintuitive, extremely hard to process, admittedly, but make it for very rich storytelling, very high stakes, and ultimately marrying so many big topics and subjects that all of us are interested in. Yeah, when you talk about you know, rich, uh, evocative storytelling, you know, when this story or this canvas kind of came on your radar, you know, what was it about this that really wanted you to sink your not only your teeth into it as a as a reporter and writer, but you know to to get on the plane to go there and to put yourself at risk for this. I think that as a, first off, I wanted to go. I'll just say that because we're also overexposed to everything. The level of what impresses us, it has to be higher and higher. So what made me willing to go and deal with, with all these uncertainties and unknowns is not so much bravado or, putting your head in the sand or overconfidence or whatever. It's more like that people's attention spans are low and people are unimpressed by so much because we're all in competition for our time and attention. And we are, at least I'll say many of us in the media are jaded to stories because we've seen it all or think we have. And what I have tried to do or what's, been maybe my lane over the past few years is the willingness or the attempt to try to explore a place or person 
in a way that we don't know. So, for example, I already have a curiosity. This is, in many ways, to be able to go travel or speak to people of high stature is like fulfilling a childhood dream. That's very lucky. You know, there's a lot of sacrifice and there's a lot of, you pay for it in certain ways. But you get to see really how a lot of things tick. And that's just, you, you really can't put a price on that. It really is so valuable. Sometimes it makes, makes me a bit of a know-it-all and, and, and my fiance kind of gives me a shit about it. But, it, you know, at the same time, you know, it, it's just, how can you not watch BBC Planet Earth or see a, a, a you know amazing film and not want to go to the Arctic, you know, or talk to that filmmaker or artist? We all do. Very few of us get to do that, and, and that's what the big appeal for me is. Yeah. And, so I'm yeah, gonna, and, and for some, especially with nature documentaries and stuff, uh, I guess the sad thing is, is that people feel a vicarious connection to it and that, you know, based on the quality of televisions and supercomputers in our hands, they're like, well, that this is just as good as the real thing. And, you know, and people like you doing the kind of work you do and be like, no, it's not as good as the real thing. Well, you know what it is? I, I, I don't know if it's not as good as the real thing. Nothing ever beats sitting down, and, you know, seeing for yourself, but we're all, we're all busy and we all have our own lives and it's expensive and time consuming. So we, we can't do it. I think the, the great thing about a good book or a good film or good music is it transports you to a yeah. place or a time. And it's the best, it's, it's, be, it's the best we have, but you know, going back to a little earlier of <clears throat> my interests and, you know, why go to places it, it, it's, there's a bit of a push and pull that, again, you know, because we are, have seen so much and stuff like 10 years ago, like polar bears, snow leopards, even like stunts or whatever, you know, you watch on online. We kind of like, there's, there's, there is, it seems like there's less mystery. It seems like things have been totally, uh, they're, they're like things are known quantities. And sometimes, to break through that noise or to get an editor's attention or a reader's attention, you got to just put shit on its head and be like, you know, there's a story in the Himalayas that I, that I, that, that where the glaciers are melting and people are building man-made glaciers as a way to mitigate a low-tech solution to a climate problem. Like, oh, okay, well, how does that work? Or, you know, NASA uses a whale called, called a narwhal to measure glacial depth to measure how much ice is melting in the Arctic. Uh, or, you know, on and on. These are kind of stuff I've written about that are just ultimately interesting. And what I like to do is marry a evocative place or maybe an animal species because it kind of is a way to hook someone in. In Congo, this is a place known for mountain grows. They're beautiful. They're fascinating. But they are uh, ultimately animals. And there's people here, millions, who are really suffering. They get no attention. Um but I try to use the, the, the natural world, the curiosity we have of a place or, or an animal or a thing as a way to bring you in and then share a, a counterintuitive thing happening, a counterintuitive figure where it will challenge what you might think of a place with a Belgian colonial past, of a region 
or a subject that you might think you know everything about, Hunter Biden, for instance. And when I interviewed him for the New York Times back during the Russia probe, my goal was, you know, we've heard a lot of things about this guy. What's what's really making him tick? Why did he use drugs and alcohol? You know, what is his plan? Uh, what is he going to do if your father becomes president? And the same interest and curiosity or, or approach I bring to Congo or to the Arctic or to wherever, you know, I bring to someone like that because I want to give someone a fair chance to, to reveal themselves and to show readers something that you might not have expected. And ultimately, whether or not that person, you support them or not, I want to humanize them and explain their motivations for why they live like they do. And regarding a conversation you have with Hunter Biden, when when you did, you know, the the heat is obviously pretty hot around around him and that family. And uh, so how did you you know, navigate the, the access you were able to get and then, you know, have that sit down conversation? You know, uh, Brandon, truth be told, the story behind the story is more interesting as it <laughs> usually is. I am somewhat reticent to lay all my cards on the table. But I will say this, the way that I approached it was similar you know, in terms of what have we not seen about this guy? What is a way in? And this was end of 2019. All the Ukraine, Russia stuff with um, on CNN every day and on Fox. I, I had heard that he was in Los Angeles where I live. I had heard that he was pursuing an art career. And I have a good relationship with the culture desk of the New York Times. And I thought, okay, if I can get him to talk about his art, that's the way in. That's the way to, to, to really do a profile on him and share with, with readers of what, who this guy is. And, um, you know, I, I, I called his lawyer, spoke to his lawyer on the phone explained who I was and my intentions. And shortly thereafter, next thing you know, I'm on the phone with him. And then a couple of days later, I'm meeting him in person. And then I'm at his house. You know, you try to build a, I try to be really, and I said a minute ago, jokingly, I'm not putting all my cards on the table. When I'm with a, if I'm sitting down with you and you're going to open up to me, I do put my cards on the table. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm saying to you, I'm going to cover it this way. No, I say to you, here's what I'm interested in. We have conversations about these things. There's no uh, rules in terms of off-limit topics. If there's something you don't want to talk about, that's your choice as an adult. But there is no deals. There is no, here's the way it's going to be. Here's when we're running it. You know, I have total independence. And that's a difficult line to, uh, that's a difficult balancing act. You, you know, you try, your, you try your best to not alienate somebody, but also to maintain your ability to uh, not feel obligated to have to cover something a certain way or, or give your source. I mean, you never, there's a lot of basics and unfortunately some folks adhere to them and some others don't, but you know, you, you try to, to do right by that person. And that means giving the opportunity to, to share and explain yourself. Doesn't mean I believe everything at face value. I might push back. I'm certainly going to check and verify, but uh, unless someone is really duplicitously lies to you, Someone lies to you, you know, you can see in coverage in certain places how reporters go after people. 
because they feel maybe um, maybe take it personally. I try not to make it personal. It shouldn't be personal. Um, again, I, I just try to be upfront with somebody, no matter what. This person, people often take umbrage to a quote or something or other like that, and that's normal. But you just try to not make mistakes. You try to. to that's what makes journalism so goddamn hard and nonfiction in general is the the checking and the verification and you know this he, there was a lot of brouhaha from from him and his camp but ultimately it was a lot of hot air we we, we were very fair with him and um i think we we're incredibly amenable to him um even there when there were some challenges along the way uh, but the final story i mean stands on its own there was no corrections there was no nothing we did a great job under incredibly difficult circumstances and the story came out a week before his father won the presidential uh i think it was south carolina with claiborne and then a week later we were in lockdown so the timing is also just wow of how it all came down but um it just goes back to the kinds of access and experiences you have as a, as a as a reporter and, and by no means is this unique to me. You know, this is, and I've heard some of these from your guests talk about this. It's always going to be a no if you don't try. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you can, doesn't mean you're going to get it, but it's just like the same thing with basketball analogy. You, you, you've got to take shots in order to see if you're going to make them. So, you know, I mean, can I get to Congo? I don't know if I can actually until let me come. I don't know if I get the visa. But let's let's try and let's see what happens. And to be ambitious, it's kind of almost like a dirty word, but I, I think it's more like stakes are high, it's competitive, and we all have insecurities and we all have a lot of doubt. And that's okay, and that's normal. But try anyway and, and do your homework and be real with people. And I think that they're gonna be real back and respect that have you found you know given that you know, something you said earlier about you know that that there is you know there's there's competition there's also trying to dis dispel myths that people might have of places trying to go to a place to just understand it better do you find that there is almost this hedonic treadmill aspect of it that you have to keep pushing yourself into more extreme circumstances and uh, ultimately that can that could threaten your life? Is that something you wrestle with at all? 100%. I, I don't like when people pretend like threats and this, the dangers you know, aren't, aren't real. I don't like when people sort of play them down or don't talk about a toll on maybe your family or your, your loved ones because they worry. What might be comfortable for me or you? Uh, uh, I, I might not be comfortable with certain things you want to do and vice versa. And it can be hard sometimes in a relationship to expect the your significant other to be comfortable. And the, the bar does keep getting higher. I, I want to go back to Congo. I have other things I'd like to write about there. Is that a good idea? Probably not. It, it is a risk. I mean, I, I want to go. A lot of the things I'm interested in. Are, there, there is a level of danger. And I hate when people say, like, well, I can go outside of my house and be hit by a car. I mean, yeah, that's true, but that's not, that's that's a silly analogy because there's certain behavior that is more risky than others. 
And I try as much as I can to mitigate those risks, but ultimately you're, we, we're, we're playing roulette in a sense. And it could be, you know, during COVID, a lot of the reporting I did was looking back, very dangerous. You know, they're going to protests and trying to get uh, protesters or police or whoever to, to comment about what's going on. Uh, you know, identifying yourself as a journalist, identifying yourself as a journalist for a prominent place that is some people respect and some people think is the devil uh, is dangerous. Doing so before getting the vaccine, you know, there's, there is a lot of risk in this. And if you don't take it seriously, you can get hurt. And I've seen a lot of people get hurt and it makes me feel stupid. If you have to have a healthy respect for, 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 for these things or else, or else it's really irresponsible. I heard um, a while ago, I forget where, uh, but Henry Rollins, the Henry Rollins band, black flag. Yeah. He's a, renowned traveler and a spoken word performer these days. And he loves putting himself and going to places that a lot of Americans are afraid to go to and countries that have been, I'll just call them beige countries, you know, that, that we see in the media that it's just like beige sand and rubble. And he goes there and he really immerses himself and dispels the myths that these places are, you know, uh, I don't know, just a place languishing in poverty in third world hellscapes. He even said the place that he felt most unsafe was actually the United States. <laughs> it was, it's the where he was attacked and nearly killed and his, he had friends killed. I wonder for you, having been abroad, if you know maybe the United States is the most dangerous place you've ever been. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Look, I mean... I think the United States has real issues. We have real separation between our people here, both ideologically and otherwise, and that is dangerous. But the, you turn on the tap, whether in almost every city, no matter how poor it is, barring a Flint or you know Michigan, things like that, we have access to basic services that these places we're talking about yeah. do not. So, yeah, I mean, I know I, I've heard this too. I, I have people, who, friends who say, I've been to, you know, this place and, you know, uh, we were fine, but I feel uncomfortable in San Diego. Well, you know, I don't, I don't really believe you, right. to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not that there, there's this expression called, um, I think, what is it? Was it war tourism or is it? Disaster tourism, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with this, of people, you know, which which there is a fine line here. And again, I feel as I'm going to some place, I'm going someplace professionally and writing about it. And even then, there, you know, there's sometimes, you know, the, the, the risk is, is real. Sometimes I feel, you know, I can understand why someone would say you shouldn't be there or you shouldn't do this. When I was doing this training in Washington, D.C., a lot of people were getting ready to go to Ukraine. Mm. And um, they were very nice people. Some of them more experienced than others. Some of them really scared and some of them not scared. And um, 
I don't want to overgeneralize. I'm going to, but I don't. I, but I preface that because you know, not everybody should be going to certain places. That is how things. Unfortunately, things will things happen, yeah. and we never know how we're going to react until some until we're put in that position. I mean, we can all talk the talk and train or whatever, you know, maybe, but something happens and you, you just don't know what you're going to do. And that's the X factor of, of this, of this kind of work. And to a degree, you do get kind of addicted to a degree. It is hard to maybe do more pedestrian, normal things. Um, You maybe you try, you try your best to, to be aware of that. But then again, you know, um, you, 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 at least I approach it in a way that it's not like just walking around by yourself on the street or walking, hiring three guys with guns. Don't, if anything, this going to Congo was, was a very unique experience for me. I've been to other places that have, have uh, conflict areas. I mean, Ladakh in, in northern India, which is on the border of Pakistan and China, you know, in Mexico, other places that are certainly have a narrative but again just you know you know maybe go back to henry rollins for a second there's parts of los angeles that are dangerous that i wouldn't go to you know people from overseas might say oh my god americans with your gun violence you're crazy and that's true but if a place is is you know if there's a neighborhood with with a bad block you don't go to that one you avoid it when you're in a region where that's has a conflict. I'm not going to it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to, to not jump in, into the fire. You know, sometimes you can see things or observe things from a, in a safe way. Um, and the, usually the safest way is not to, not, you know, you don't go there. There's ways to, to do the reporting sometimes that you, you don't, you don't want to get hurt and you don't want to unnecessarily risk if you can. And a lot of times I feel that reporters want to be in front of the storm or the sometimes literally you see sometimes these you know, a hurricane. Do you really need to be uh, halfway underwater? It's not yeah. safe, you know. What I mean? And that's the expectation as a viewer. We we want to see that. We're we're glued to that. We kind of want to see something go wrong because we've we've seen where at this point we've we've seen so much, and that has in its own conversation about voyeurism and media and and us as watchers. It's fascinating, but. You know, it's also so indicative of our of our time and how we live. Tying into your Congo piece, you know, there are these Bitcoin mines that are very central to it. And um, help me understand, you know, what Bitcoin is and how you mine it. Like that to me is still very confusing. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've done a couple uh, podcasts recently with people in the Bitcoin world. And we just talked about Bitcoin and none of the other stuff that we're talking about now. So it's on its head, which is which is funny. Bitcoin is, a, is a, a digital currency that you use heavy computer power to perform algorithms, math problems, you know, to solve for, and you're rewarded with a piece of this digital currency that has no real value as opposed to what we just ascribe to it. That in and of itself is a whole other world of cryptocurrency, blockchain. Many people are, the ones who are into it are very into it. It's going to change the world. We'll leave that aside for a second. 
Bitcoin itself has been criticized for being very heavy on fossil fuels to generate that power. The thing in Congo is there is no power grid in this area. And there are hydroelectric power plants that the park has built to try to seed businesses and development infrastructure. In this case, these power plants, or at least one power plant, is powering the Bitcoin operation, meaning no fossil fuels, no carbon footprint, and a green Bitcoin operation. So basically creating power naturally without hurting the environment, funneling that power to these computers who then recruit a currency and money uh, that is then used to power the park in terms of pay bills in a period when they have very limited income from the pandemic, from the militia warfare, from other things like that over the last few years. So that's the basic setup. And a lot of the Bitcoin proponents are saying, which in this case is true, they say, aha, Bitcoin for good. This is a green project. You know, this is the power of Bitcoin. And that may well be true. However, you know, Bitcoin could crash tomorrow. And it costs money to, to, to put this project together. The adherents of there, the guys, the, the park itself, they're not fanatics. They see this as a happy accident in some ways that it just so happens that in a fortuitous way that they got lucky and that this has worked. That doesn't mean that they're, they're advocating for the complete blockchain uh, revolution where everything is in the cloud or anything is, you know, decentralization, whatever that really means. Um, this is a very pragmatic approach to, to get money uh, to, to fund the park in a period when they have very little funding. So that's the, uh, the MIT tech review piece follows this story about how the park did this. Yeah. It's still like, like it baffles me that there are these like, I know, like normal concrete, salt mining, coal mining, like that I get. You go into the ground, it's very invasive, you take it out of the earth, extractive industry, blah, blah, blah. I, I understand that. But the 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 building of these mega computers doing statistical work to then find this thing that is ma- altogether made up, that's still, to me, I can't just get my, I can't get my head around it. <laughs> me neither. And I didn't, so this is, goes back to when you asked about how did this all come about? I didn't know this part of the story until mm-hmm. I got there. You know, this is not something they were broadcasting. I was interested in the hydroelectric, the renewable energy side. Some of those challenges in and of itself are fascinating. And when I when I got there, you know, hey, we have something to show you. We fly in this plane onto this, this mountain, which is so steep, and land. And there's this imposing cathedral-like power plant, which is run by hydropower and connected to these trailers that have all these computers in them on the middle of the side of this jungly mountain with bush dogs and bugs flying past you and jungle crabs on the ground that you try to avoid. And then rangers with AK-47s kind of patrolling. And this is what, you know, it goes back to, whoa, what is, what is going on here? It was a very cinematic quality, very visceral, very counterintuitive because it's high tech in a place with, without paved roads. You know, they built these roads 
they built these dirt roads with hand tools. They modified this mountain with pickaxes. I mean, this is hard work. This is, you know, even these militia guys who are, who are, you know, your, your head will peel back when you hear some of these stories. These guys live in the jungle. These guys live uh, in incredibly hard conditions. You, you, you almost have, you know, it's hard not to have respect for, for the population, even in, under these conditions. So yeah, this Bitcoin mine of itself, it could be another model for, for the so-called developing world places without power places without, or obviously you need a, a river for hydro, but central Africa has a lot of those. There are similar operations or there are Bitcoin operations in Kenya and in some other places. The question will be then, will this money go to improve local communities' lives? That's to be determined. Will this help the instability? Again, we don't know. And, and it's, 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 it's easy to paint with a broad brush and say, this is a good or this is bad. But the reality is, it's very hard to determine the implications of this, you know, some of the, the parts projects, they allow for, for public lighting at mm. night. You know, maybe there's not thousands of people who have lighting in their house, but if you have light on the street when you're walking, you're, you're, you're safer, that's for sure. So other projects provide clean water. Those are good things. Um, some of the criticism has been that some of the local communities do not get access to all of these resources, or they don't always get asked for their input. Um, and those are other questions that, that are valid questions that I don't have the answers for. And, and, and some of them, you know, are, are hard to answer uh, who the stakeholders are, who are the, how do you give voice to everyone? Uh, it's incredibly hard. Um, but again, my objective as a, as, a, as a writer is not only to, to try to create a narrative that's interesting, but as a reporter, you're, you're have a responsibility, I think, to tell a story that others aren't. And to try to to give a little bit of spotlight to some of these voiceless people. And, and given the the nerves that you were talking about earlier, uh, I wonder, you know, how do you sleep when you're abroad, or how well do you sleep? I should say. It's a good question. Um, on this one, I was so, I, to be honest with you, I was really wired by the end of the night. I was really wired. You, so I, I try to like to do a lot of training and like exercise to be in good shape. So that you you're like you're kind of like a you go, you know. I I you try to I try to build rest days before I start. Maybe I, I go somewhere in my hotel for my by myself for two days or something. Uh, try to fight the jet lag. Try to eat really well. Try to exercise because you know there you have days, and this is not just this trip. This is in general. You start at seven eight a.m. You know, and you're up working till nine ten. So you're in the room. I record. Uh, audio. I take notes. Sometimes you have the, their stories. I'll talk to, to dozens of people. Not everyone makes it in the story. And this helps you get a sense of an overall theme. You know, it's not because two people said this and one person said this. It's not really like that. It's like you kind of start hearing narratives that emerge. You start hearing stories and and you understand kind of the lay of the land. But it's it can be hard, you know. Sometimes you're kind of on fumes. Given that, too, they where wherever you may go, it's not like there's like a Walmart down the road where you can, I don't know, get batteries or fill in the blank. 
So like for you, when you're, let's say when you're on this Congo trip, you know, what was in your, your pack that you had on you all the time? So you, you know, your, your notebooks, your records, like what, what are some of the fundamental things that are always in your satchel? I mean, you're not even going to believe me. The the photo I sent you, I have a sandwich in my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, like I'm, I'm really into gear and stuff like that, but I make sure I have food and water and um, I also had a mask in my pocket. In this case, Congo, uh, COVID doesn't exist in Congo. Neither does homosexuality or uh, several other things. But, and I say that obviously tongue in cheek, but I had a mask because there's so much dust in the road. You know, I have, um, I brought an EpiPen. I brought things, uh, I, I brought batteries. I brought soccer balls that I gave to the Rangers. I, I, you know, it's like one thing, it's one thing to, to, when you just give money, it, it, you know, you try, you obviously, I, I give tips to people who help me because um, that's sometimes people work for that. But I try to, you know, I ask in advance, what can I bring? They told me a certain Pepto-Bismol medicine, things that they can't get at the local pharmacy. Mm-hmm. I brought nuts. I brought things that, that people could use that ultimately also helped me as a reporter because I'm not just expecting to take when I come. I, I want to provide some value. You know, I'm trying to help. You know, I ask often, what is the story people get wrong? What is the story foreigners come and tell that you drives you nuts? And a lot of them have told me that they see things through Western eyes. Now, of course, I'm a Westerner. You know, this is another conversation of, who gets to tell what stories and that's very that's a whole other like I have a whole episode about that but you know you I, I try to listen is what I can do I really try to listen to, to those kinds of concerns and, and, and issues and then again tell the stories that are not being told and you'll never please everyone you know there's always going to be for instance Hunter Biden I have people saying to me Great job. He's so sweet. He's amazing. He's been through so much. Adam did a great job. Other people say to me, you are a piece of shit, Adam. You're a mouthpiece for this. But, but, like people go to my Amazon page where my book is to complain about Hunter Biden <laughs> or send me like nasty stuff. And I thought, to be honest with you, we could have been harder on him. So to think that we're so like, you can't please anybody sometimes. But that said, you try. I try. I want to stop saying you. I try to to reflect as accurately as I can what I'm really seeing and the stories that people share with me. I want to get a sense of, you know, your relationship to mortality, you know, given that you feel the nerves, you know you're going to places that are that you've even said are, are scary, and that can uh reframe, you know, life in your own life in particular in a completely different way. So I wonder, you know, to just to reiterate the question, like what your relationship is to your own mortality. I don't really know how to answer that to tell you the truth, because it's going to sound, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, um, you know, during the pandemic, the last few years, I feel like I've, uh, I've aged a lot. I've matured mm-hmm. a lot in many ways. It's never been more on my mind, you know, in terms of, the, of time and of being with loved ones and what's important. So, a very it's a very loaded question all right i'm gonna jump in here just for a second loaded question okay 
I really feel the need to maybe explain this if only for myself. I've always been confused by what a loaded question is, but I know by and large that it's typically something you should avoid. So I googled around for a satisfactory explanation, and this is what I found. Many loaded questions are yes-no that have an assumption built into it that when the person answers the question, they can't do so without appearing guilty. All that said, did I ask Adam a loaded question or merely a question that is heavy, the latter being my more in my intention? Maybe if he says he doesn't consider his own mortality, then he's coming off as cavalier or flippant. And if he says yes, he's doing so or doing this work, knowing full well the risk he's putting himself and by extension loved ones in. So while it isn't a yes-no question, I guess it is loaded, and I guess that's why Adam is way smarter than I am. It, maybe I should have cut this from the conversation altogether. And now I have to rethink how I interview people because I'm guessing I have inadvertently asked a lot of loaded questions over the years, trying to get a better understanding of a person's why, I guess is why I'm into that. I I don't know. Uh, For me, I'm such a chicken shit that going down to the Fred Meyer fills me with anxiety. Adam goes to places where he needs protection from dudes with AK-47s. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I've asked loaded questions in the past and I'm going to do far better job of making sure I don't do it in the future. Is that cool? Okay. Let's finish this up. Let's wrap this up. There's one thing I want to tell you this about the Congo, for instance, in terms of the nerve side and and how I kind of dealt with things, the reporting. And and sometimes when you're really engaged in it, when you're doing something, whether I'm looking in the mountains or whatever, you're so distracted and you're so in the moment that that's what is is important. And like I was in little, little tiny, tiny airplanes, you know, over these, we flew over some rebel camps, you know, and we, and they, there was bullet holes in the, in the, in the, in the wing of the, of one of the planes. And, you know, you, you know, it, it, it's like, if you really think about some of these things, they're terrifying. Now, I'm going to tell you something that this is the honest truth. I didn't feel nervous on this trip. It took me to go when I crossed the border back to Rwanda and I realized some of the things of my experience. I, 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 had, I had difficulty processing. Was I really in danger? Am I, am I lying to myself? Am I stupid? Is there something wrong with me that I wasn't nervous? You know, that was the kind of stuff that I was kind of dealing with because the timing, when I arrived, I arrived on March 23rd, March 23rd, March 23rd is the name of the big militia group, M23. And while I was there, they were getting really active. Some of the places I was in, Nchiro is a town, that place has been totally overrun by militia. You know, the hydro power plant I saw close by to there, taken over. They were, they bombed it. And there was, there was a whole incident, you know, and during my trip, on the last morning, I could hear shelling, and it's quite jarring. It's quite like you almost you're thinking to yourself, "What? What mm. am I hearing?" You know, and you're hearing you're hearing some kind of artillery fire and hitting something. And apparently, the army was firing on M23. It's a very tense vibe. And that was the day I was leaving, and I'm with the park, and it, it, it like it feels kind of like a movie. It's, it's sort of 
it's hard to describe without seeming like like you're showing off that you know but you're you put i i guess i guess when i talk to my parents about this or you know other people close to me they said wow you put a lot of trust into these people you with and um you kind of do you, you do if you're flying a plane with somebody if you're flying to san francisco in a southwest jet you're you're putting trust in the pilot that they know how to yeah. do their job. You're putting trust in the engineers and the mechanics. You're not really thinking, or you know, that's incredibly dangerous in a lot of ways. We're flying off the ground, but we're not thinking about it that way. We're probably thinking about, oh, I got to go to this meeting, or hey, I'm going to this whatever, or seeing a friend. And there's an, uh, so many things we kind of place out of our mind that we just think is regular business. And the craziest part of this region is that all this shit that we're talking about, militias weapons, shelling, that's regular for them. So things to me that I was thinking, oh, okay, is this weird? No, it's happening on the mountain. Uh, it's, it's, they, the army fires them, they fire back. It's whatever, kind of like, on the, you know, people don't, don't trip about <laughs> certain things that, that everybody else would. And, Okay, the morning I'm leaving, you can hear the show, and I do an interview with Emmanuel, and you can hear in the background, and he says, look, I have to go right now because I have to talk to the general. I have to talk to this person because they have to make plans. You know, you act business as usual, but they make a plan of, if this happens, here's how we have to evacuate. We're going to bring all the planes from here to another base, and we're going to have to take care of these people. And there's a there's a whole kind of, it's like chess in a way that they have, it, it, it is hard to, to process and when I found out the next day, I saw some, you know, I went over the border to Rwanda. I could hear the shelling because I was on the other side of the mountain. I could still hear the shelling the next day. And I was looking, searching online. You know, there's no stories about it. One of the friends I made there sent me a video of the airfield that I had taken off from less than 24 hours earlier. Missiles flying above it. And you could see them just streaking over. And your heart stops because you think, oh my God, I was just there. And that location and the exact place that I was sleeping were totally evacuated mm. less than 24 hours after I left. So I couldn't help thinking to myself, what, is, what does that even mean in terms of the timing? You know, does that mean I'm so lucky? Am I stupid for going? Am I, am I tempting fate? It's very hard to put into words and explain it. And it's, I kind of sought out Others who had been in certain similar situations afterward to try to make sense of it for myself. I don't know if that fully answers the question, but it's just kind of kind of hard to to just. It's just it, it was so. It was like traveling for the first time. It, it was just such a you know. And I'm talking about these dramatic things visually. This is the second largest rainforest in the world. Mm. You know, there's the Congo Basin. There's, there is almost more biodiversity here in terms of different species than anywhere. There was uh, incredibly warm, interesting people with a real zest for life in spite of these challenges, in spite of the fatalism, many, in many ways probably because of it, and a desire for them, for a lot of people to be, to be respected and be taken seriously and, and, and to be... Uh, given a chance to, to 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 represent themselves beyond a narrative of a poor, suffering African, because this is a continent that's incredibly young, 
this tech savvy that is going to be a much larger player in terms of uh, the, the, the interconnectedness of our world, the way that China in the last 10, 15 years, you know, the young, the, the, the middle class there has just traveled and, and, and is building businesses and Africa is like so diverse and so much more than this one note of the, the suffering person let's give money to help this this you know that does exist but boy there is just so much more there that is just so fascinating and so unknown to the average mm. American yeah and just one last thing Adam I, I always like digging in for a recommendation of some kind uh, for the listeners out there it's always kind of a fun way to bring this airliner down for a landing so uh, I'd extend that to you uh, what might you recommend to the listeners out there if they're interested in reading more about Congo and uh, about the geopolitical world or landscape there, uh, I recommend King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild. It's uh, nonfiction, but it's a fantastic look at basically the Belgian colonial past and King Leopold who ruled this place as his private fiefdom in the late 1800s. That's fantastic. But there are some fiction writers from Africa that I want to mention to you. I'm looking at my shelf. There's a couple that are talk about shattering stereotypes that we might think of, uh, again, the suffering. I mean, you know, what was me? No, I mean, this is, um, I'm going to name a couple names. There is a, there's a guy from Zanzibar named Abdul Razak Gurna. He just won the Nobel Prize. There's a book of his called Paradise that is absolutely fabulous. It's it's so. I mean, these are like stylists. He's he's fantastic. He he's uh, I think he's over seventy. Just won the Nobel Prize mm. for fiction, and he is. Uh, all of his books are now being published in English. Uh, another one that's that's worth reading is a Kenyan named Gugi, N-G-U-G-I. His last name is Tiongo. And he's a guy that we probably have, owe more of a debt than we realize because he was one of the first per- people talking about decolonizing language. Mm. And some of his his uh, rhetoric there, most of the people who talk about this, this really heavy topic don't really know where it came from, but he's a Kenyan and he writes again about, um, he wrote in English first after independence and then started writing in with Kikuyu, which is uh, one of the languages of Kenya and talked about, you know, can I be an African writer writing in the language of a European, which is, you know, at the time when he first said that he, that he was at, went to jail and then he was in jail, he wrote, in his, in his own language, um, I think he went full circle and said, well, if I'm African, I'm an African writer. You know, I, I, I say this because, you know, English is my first language, but it's not my father's or my mother's. Does that make me less of a American writer, a Jewish writer, if you want to put that, a whatever writer? You know, this is like heavy stuff, but fascinating. And a, one or two more that I'll mention from Congo, there is a guy named Inkoli Jean, Inkoli Jean Beaufain. He has a book called Mathematique uh, Congolais uh, that's in French, 
but he has another one called Congo Inc. And it talks about the, uh, basically it's really about making fun of the bureaucracy of corruption. This is like, you know, literature that, that is so cutting edge and so modern. And I think, again, one of the benefits of reading is seeing that experience of someone else, how they live. And a lot of this is so goddamn relatable, uh, and which just makes it just, just you know, entertainment medium that is not really old-fashioned or shouldn't be. And it brings us closer together, I hope. Oh, fantastic. That's wonderful, Adam. So, uh, yeah, I'll... Uh... Just thank, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the work and those great recommendations uh, to kind of bust us out of uh, a lot of the, the the well-worn grooves that we tend to read in. I think those will be really valuable. I'll look forward to linking up to those. So just uh, thanks for everything. Thanks for all you do. And I, I'd like to think this might be the first of many conversations we'll have. So thanks for coming on the podcast here and, uh, and for shining a light on your work. Thank you, Brennan. Thank you for having me. listening CNFers and thanks to Adam if you like this conversation as much as I did and I did consider sharing it and tagging me in the show at CNF pod on Twitter or at creative nonfiction podcast on Instagram consider heading to patreon.com slash CNF pod to throw a few bucks into the tip jar show is free but it sure as hell ain't cheap and as you know you can always rage against the algorithm with my up to 11 monthly newsletter by heading to brendanamera.com hey hey for show notes to this and like a billion other episodes. So getting resistance from people about pre Steve Prefontaine subject of the biography I'm writing. Many people are saying there's just nothing new to add that hasn't already been said before. You know, what's been said already in books and articles is the record. And I, I really disagree based on everything that I've read and some of the people I've already spoken to, things I haven't heard or seen before. I've read just about everything, and I'm finding new things from people I talk to. I think some people really discount their experiences. Right? Fact is, if, if all a person remembers is maybe what a fan was yelling beside him as he was watching a race, that matters. It really does. You know, to use a cooking metaphor, that's building layers of flavor. Right, that's that's gumbo, not something, not not the the micro magic hamburgers of my youth. You know, we're talking let let this thing simmer, and that extra detail that just it makes the scene really pop. And a lot of people are pretty skeptical too. You know, I've been equated with other hit and run helicopter reporters. Yeah, I'm I'm just this this vulture, you know, accused of having biases and an unwillingness to look beyond my preconceived notions. I think you guys know me well enough that curiosity is my engine. And I oftentimes, especially when I'm reporting, I don't really talk much at all. You know, I, I'm more there just imploring people to keep on talking. I listen. I go there with an open mind and an open notebook. Anyway, this shit ain't easy. I knew that was going to be the case. I, I've never reported on a famous person before. And naturally, the people who might have shared experiences with reporters in the past, they have might have been burned, and thus I'm just lumped in with them. There's a lot of lobbying for why you're different than anybody else, which I'm sure they've heard before. I'm sure every other reporter that burned them was just like, well, I'm different. You know, it's a, it's a bigger part of this mess than I anticipated. I anticipated some of it for sure, uh, but I'm just 
you know, running into a lot of skepticism, resentment, and even resistance. Uh, So anyway, that's par par for the course, I guess, and you just got to keep on going. In the last newsletter, I shared this article from James Clear, uh, author of Atomic Habits, about the paperclip trick. You know, you have two cups or bins side by side, and you put, say, 50 paperclips in one at the start of your day. The example Clear uses is a salesman who made cold calls or something, and and every time he made a call, he moved the clip from one cup to the empty cup. The goal by the end of the day was to transfer all the paperclips from the one cup to the next. And at the end of the day, you've made a bunch of calls. You see the evidence of it. I'm not I'm not at the heavy phone call stage yet, but I'm in the scouring the newspaper business right now. And uh, so for each new article I find, I move one paperclip over to the cup. By the end of the day, there's about 40 to 50 new ones. And it's very overwhelming. There's just so much. There's a glut of, of stories. And uh, there are some original ones, a lot of repetitive ones. But you got to go through it because sometimes even the repetitive ones, they'll have that one extra little nugget. And you're like, damn it. I've been combing through here. And this one might have like the temperature on the track, you know, or others didn't have that. And some might also have the attendance in one and the others don't. And so all of a sudden, those that's the, the flavor building, flavor layering. But in any case, with this paperclip thing, you realize that at the end of the week, you might you've got 200 to 250 per week and you're looking at a thousand a month and you know I, by i would say one to two months you're probably starting to fully drain the well there's only so much out there it takes a lot a while to log the articles you know, I put them in uh i put them in dropbox get the link put that in the spreadsheet for future fact checkers uh, make them make these articles easily searchable by saying the date, the headline, outlet, byline, the page is on, and in a little notes section if there's any good quote, I kind of type in that quote. You know, if Steve, if Pre actually talked, I color it green. If someone talked about him, I color it yellow, and so that way, at a glance, I'm seeing okay, there's where. There, there's his voice in an article, and then in another one is like, okay, that's someone talking about him, and you know, it's okay at a glance, I can see that. And then some just have seen, some just have uh, another cast of characters that are worth logging and trying to track them down if they're still alive to talk about them. So as you can imagine, that takes a lot of time. So sometimes even getting to fifty articles by the end of the day is actually, it's about it's about the upper limit of what I can do. But the idea being, uh, the more effort you put into cataloging things early, the easier it will be when it comes time to write and fact check. And that's been the grind. It's been mildly demoralizing on some fronts. Uh, But I had to expect this, right? I have to learn not to take to heart that uh, people view me as this vulture there to reinforce the worldview I'm bringing to this book, when in fact I'm trying to dispel the worldview that most people have trying to sandblast the coat of paint off of what we see here and reveal something new. For some people, you're the enemy of the people, right? Because you have a notebook, pencil, recorder. And that's a struggle, and it's hard not to take it personally because that's not who I am. I know that. I think you guys know that. Some other people I've worked with know that. But everyone else is 
giving you that side eye. And so you just keep on plugging. You're never going to win everybody over, but hope is that you can win enough of them over. So that's it. Okay? Stay wild, CNFers. If you can't do, interview. See ya.